0: Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, world-renowned physicist Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell looks at how poetry portrays astronomy. She considers whether poets engage with the science and if poetry has followed the major developments in astronomy. The lecture includes poetry readings.
1: Thank you very much. You'll have already heard the danger signs this is my hobby. Let people loose in front of an audience to talk about their hobby. Six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock. <laughs> it is, however, a wonderful excuse for me to review what I've collected by way of poetry and to try and draw out one or two themes from it. So, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for being an audience here tonight. What I'm going to talk about comes under a few headings, Um, why, which, and what, and I'll also talk a little bit about poets who are into astronomy and poets who are anti-astronomy or indeed anti-science, and there's about a dozen specimen poems that we'll read during the evening most of them uh, by members of the audience. So why astronomy and poetry? I do a lot of public speaking, lectures for all kinds of audiences about astronomy, all aspects of astronomy. And perhaps 10 years ago, I started including little bits in my lectures I found that these uh, got commented on afterwards um, in two ways. Um, The nerdish members of the audience didn't have a clue what was going on. (laughs) The less nerdish, and perhaps those who were a bit more daunted by the science, actually spoke appreciatively. And I suspect it ah, humanises science to some extent, And maybe make scientific issues a bit more accessible. I found I was enjoying it. I like words and I like rhythm. Scottish country dancing and that kind of thing. So I think perhaps it's not surprising that poetry appeals to me. But I have to say I came to it very late in life. I had a very good education at an expensive girls boarding school but it's really only in the last 20 years that I've found that I enjoyed poetry. I enjoy science very, very much. It's great. But I find I cannot live by science alone, that my life needs other things for it to feel properly rounded. And I also discovered that at tense times, like when you're waiting for the outcome of a job interview or something like that, waiting for your kids' exam results, that at those times, poetry helped, I think is, is the, the best thing to say. It soothed, it calmed. And I think we all also know that, in a way, poetry heals. For example, after 9-11... Particularly in the US, but not just in the US, people were sharing snippets of poetry, emailing verses to each other, because somehow the poetry spoke to what they were feeling at that time in that terrible crisis. And you're probably also well aware that at funerals, poetry goes down very well, times of bereavement. So I think poetry helps us recognize and articulate emotions that perhaps otherwise we can't properly express or we have some trouble expressing. And it also, of course, shows that others have had the same experience, which of itself is an enormous relief to us and healing that way. I've been working in the last few years on a chapter of a book, which is now just out, I'm pleased to say. Uh, It's a book about contemporary contemporary poetry and contemporary society. And different of us have written the different chapters in it. And I've done the chapter on astronomy and poetry. I did it, of course, on my computer. And as I did it in a Word document... It became abundantly clear to me that jolly old spellchecker in Word doesn't like poetry. <laughs> it likes to put a capital letter at the beginning of every new line. Some poets don't. It doesn't understand things like air e r apostrophe e and puts a wiggly red line under it it likes verbs at regular intervals and proper sentences and spellchecker for me began to epitomize the difference between science and poetry spellchecker copes fine with logical sentences properly constructed but deviate from that and it's lost similarly sometimes if you're too focused on the science you get into a kind of logical mode from which you can't escape, deviate. And sometimes the science is the poorer for that. So, spell checker was a considerable problem. Uh, and I never discovered how to re educate it. Um, some of these things are supposed to learn as they go along, but mine certainly didn't. I'd like, at this point, to have read for you the first poem that I started including in lectures. Um, the procedure we're going to use for those of us, those of you who volunteer to read, on our holding sheets of paper, are that I'll call upon the person, and I don't always know who it is, the person who has "Delay" by Elizabeth Jennings. I happen to know it's you, and she already has a microphone. But if you're one of the readers, Wait for the microphone to come to you. Let's have Elizabeth Jennings delay. Delay. The radiance of the star that leans on me was shining years ago. The light that now glitters up there my eye may never see. And so the time lag teases me with how love that loves now may not reach me until its first desire is spent. The star's impulse Must wait for eyes to claim it beautiful. And love arrived may find us somewhere else. Good poetry, good emotions and good science. The light that you'll see tonight after dark, and I think it's going to be a clear night, the light from the stars up there has taken years to get here literally. The light that reaches your eye tonight actually started its journey many years ago. And so you're not actually seeing the star or the galaxy or whatever as it is tonight. You're seeing it as it was all those years ago when that ray of light started its journey to your eye. You're looking at it as it was. Which poetry is there out there? There's an amazing amount of poetry once you get collecting. Poetry that mentions the moon, the stars, sometimes the sun, sometimes galaxies. Some of it, of of course, just gives token mention to the astronomy. Oh, isn't that a beautiful moon? And how gorgeous you are, my dear. Your eyes are this, your cheeks are that, your lips are something else. And the astronomy is forgotten. It served temporarily as wallpaper. I don't count that for my collection. If it doesn't get proper mention, I'm not collecting it. So I require the poet not just to use the astronomy as the backdrop, but to actually engage with it a little bit more. I also have a somewhat arbitrary criterion about scientific accuracy. to make up a ridiculous example if there were something written like oh wondrous moon made of cheese configured by a cosmic mouse whose paw prints pock the surface still didum 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 now now too much off be i've been focusing recently on poetry written in the last 50 years That's what I had to cover in the book chapter. And that's an interesting epoch to follow because astronomy really took off 50 years ago after the Second World War. It was no coincidence it was after the Second World War. The rockets that von Braun developed to send nasty things over to Britain have been further developed and now launch satellites into space. And those satellites carry telescopes to observe the radiations that don't get down through the atmosphere to the Earth's surface. The development of rockets lets us do X-ray astronomy, lets us do ultraviolet astronomy, for example, where stars and galaxies send out rays, but the Earth's atmosphere, atmosphere cuts them out. It was following the development of radar that those radar dishes got turned into radio telescopes to receive signals from stars and galaxies out there. Signals generated perfectly naturally. Not um, radar, not little green men. And it's led to radio telescopes like the big one at Jodrell Bank. So most of what I'm talking about tonight is from the last 50 years or so. And in that time, all these new kinds of astronomy have developed. Radio astronomy, ultraviolet, infrared, X-ray, gamma ray, and so on. Astronomy has grown. And as our technologies have grown, so has our reach. And we've discovered quasars and pulsars and black holes and brown dwarfs, And dark matter and dark energy, I think. And the Big Bang and the cosmic microwave background and so it goes on. An enormous revolution in astronomy in the last 50 years. And our understanding of the size of the universe has also grown hugely. I think I've probably said all of that so let's move on. This is just to remind you of the different kinds of astronomy that there are. This is the only graph we'll have. Um, Technical name, the electromagnetic spectrum. Informal name, the family of light. Things like light that we can't see with our eyes but which astronomers can pick up with the appropriate kind of telescope. Here in the middle is light split up into a little rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo and violet. The rest of it we can't see. I first uh, appreciated this when I I went on a training course where we learnt some of the politically correct language around disability. I think, since we can only see that, but there's all that and all that, it's fair to say that we, human beings, are electromagnetically challenged. (laughs) If you start in the middle of the light rainbow and go out the blue and purple end, you come first of all to the ultraviolet. Beyond that is X-rays. Beyond that is gamma rays. And examples of ultraviolet that you might have come across causes sunburn, causes fluorescence, like in disco lights. X rays, you'll have met in hospitals. One of the alarming things you can do today is with an audience of kids say, How many of you have had an X ray? And virtually every kid puts up their hand. They can't all have had broken arms and legs, can they? Or bad teeth. It's interesting and disturbing. Gamma rays used for sterilization of equipment in a hospital sterilisation of food and also used in radiation treatment. The cobalt bomb is gamma rays. Go back to our little rainbow, come out the red end of the spectrum. We go through infrared and then into various radio, millimetre and radio proper. Infrared, infrared lamps and heaters, slightly longer wavelength, lower frequency, radar, microwave ovens, microwave links, Television, VHF radio, short wave, and long wave. Radio astronomers operate all the way across here, all these. But before World War II, that was effectively the only one that people did anything with, just straying a little bit into the X ray. So all this is 50 years old. Have the poets noticed? This is the big radio telescope in Cheshire. It was one of the first very large radio telescopes opened in 1957. So it's 50 years old next year and amazingly still going strong. Nearly bankrupted uh, Sir Bernard Lovell. He wasn't Sir then. But along came the Russian Sputnik, Sputnik 1, and this was the only. DISH, only radio telescope in the world that had a big enough collecting area to pick up those weak signals. So they tracked Sputnik using Jodrell Bank. And that saved Sir Bernard's bacon. Radio astronomy is now very much one of the thriving branches of astronomy. But there's also X-ray astronomy, which is also thriving. And two pictures here. First of all, the launch of a satellite... Uh, which will be in the tip of the nose cone. No, this is shuttle, sorry. It'll be in the shuttle bay. Uh, I think that's the launch of Chandra, if I remember rightly. Um, beautiful photograph with the reflections, done from Florida. And an image, an artist's impression, I have to say, of a satellite in orbit around the Earth. Not, well, the scale's a bit ambiguous, but satellites go around the Earth, that's the main thing and they get equipment up above the Earth's atmosphere. So we can do kinds of astronomy we can't do here from Earth. There are a number of poets who have been into astronomy. Robert Frost is a well-known one. Thomas Hardy also was a keen amateur astronomer, and like Robert Frost, he had a telescope of his own. Uh, The poet Robert Lowell... Uh, is was a nephew of the Lowell who founded the Lowell Observatory in Arizona, but i'm not clear that the two met because one died just shortly after the other was born. Um, h d uh, was the daughter of the director of an observatory in Philadelphia, Doolittle Hilda Doolittle and there's another one that i've temporarily forgotten. Oh yes, Gwyneth Lewis, the Welsh poet, whose words are on the Millennium Building in Cardiff. She has a cousin who is an astronaut, goes up on the space shuttle. And some of her poetry talks about her cousin flying on the shuttle. Um, Somebody has Robert Frost, the star splitter, to read. It's you again. No, it's you. Sorry. Would you wait a second for the microphone, which is coming?
0: Thank you. (coughs) Yeah? The Star Splitter. You know, Orion always comes up sideways, throwing a leg up over our fence of mountains and rising on his hands. He looks in on me, busy outdoors by lantern light, with something I should have done by daylight and indeed after the ground is frozen I should have done before it froze and a gust flings a handful of waste leaves at my smoky lantern chimney to make fun of my way of doing things or else fun of her having caught me as a man I should like to ask no rights these forces are obliged to pay respect to so Brad McLaughlin mingled reckless talk of heavenly stars with Hugger Farming, till, having failed at Hugger Farming, he burned his house down for the fire insurance and spent the proceeds on a telescope to satisfy a lifelong curiosity about our place among the infinities. What do you want with one of those blamed things? I asked him well beforehand. Don't you get one? Don't call it blamed. There isn't anything more blameless in the sense of being less a weapon in our human fight, he said. I'll have one if I sell my farm to buy it. There where he moved the rocks to plough the ground and ploughed between the rocks he couldn't move, few farms changed hands. So rather than spend years trying to sell his farm and then not selling, he burned his house down for the fire insurance and bought the telescope with what it came to. He had been heard to say by several, the best thing that we're put here for is to see. The strongest thing that's given us to see with is a telescope. Someone in every town seems to me owes it to the town to keep one. In Littleton, it might as well be me. After such loose talk, it was no surprise when he did what he did and burned his house down. (laughs) Thank you.
1: That's actually only part of the whole poem. Robert Frost is quite prolific, but it's it's super stuff. This is the constellation of Orion that uh, Robert Frost was referring to, and it does come up sideways, but this is it um, in the middle of the night when it's bolt upright. Orion is a hunter. This is a constellation you can see very well in the night sky in winter, December, January, February, and you probably recognize it. The most recognizable bit are these three stars, which make up Orion's belt. There's a blurry bit down here, which is the sword or dagger hanging from his belt. This bright orangey-red star is called Betelgeuse, which translates as armpit of the mighty one (laughs) apparently armpits were erotic and he's busy shooting there's the dog star Sirius somewhere down here which you find by tracking down his belt to something very bright that's the dog following at his heels and if you track up his belt you come to a group of stars called the Pleiades or the seven sisters and the mythology is that Orion was pestering the seven sisters, so much so that they turned themselves into swans, flew away in the sky, and became this group of stars. Orion said, Anything they can do, I can do better. So he turned himself into a constellation. And he is forever going round the sky in this direction, chasing the seven sisters, but never catching them. It's a beautiful constellation. It's got examples of most kinds of stars at the various stages. Uh, New stars are being created down here in the sword. Uh, The Pleiades is a group of very young stars. This is a star that's past its prime and showing signs of ageing. And Sirius has a companion, inevitably known as the pup which is a very, very old star, which is not nearly as bright as Sirius itself uh, and is quite hard to see in the face of Sirius. But that's Orion, um, and there are several poems about Orion, but I've only got the one this evening. Oh, yes, Robinson Jeffers' brother was an, an astronomer at Lick. I've told you about H.D. and the Lowells and Gwyneth Lewis. Interestingly, there aren't many people writing poetry who are professional poets. The people who write the most poetry on astronomical themes, Diane Ackerman, we'll have one of her shortly, Robert Frost, Carl Sandberg, Frederick Seidel, all these are US poets There are many other poets who've written, as far as I can see, one poem on an astronomical topic. Um, That one never seems to be in anthologies, and so it's quite hard to find. We'll have um, a Thomas Hardy poem in a little bit as well. The poets have noticed the radio telescopes. Well, they're big, so I suppose they would. But they haven't noticed the X-ray satellites that we've launched into space. Although they've noticed some of the things the X-ray satellites discovered, like black holes. Some of the poets have latched onto the scale of the universe, which is so huge that it defies imagination. And the Big Bang that started it all. But comets make a disproportionate effect. I guess some of them at least you can see from here on Earth. And that's what attracts the poets. Black holes I've already mentioned. And attention is given to the exploration of space. And it's usually slightly anxious attention. We're going away from home. We're leaving the comfort zone, the safe place. We're going out into the dark unknown. We haven't actually explored very far into space. And if you imagine something like an orange with cling film wrapped around it, we've not really been beyond the cling film. Not much beyond the cling film. But that's a long way for some people and the poets reflect that. starting with radio telescopes and what they're used for a couple of images and then a couple of poems Uh, the top image this Y shaped thing is a lot of little radio dishes which together make a bigger one it's the very large array and it's in New Mexico in the USA and because it's Quite an interesting shape, quite striking. You can see it from a long way off. The lower picture is of a very big single dish in Puerto Rico. It's the Arecibo radio telescope. Uh, It's in limestone country. And you know that in limestone karst country there are sinkholes. What they've done is found a very big sinkhole, about 1,000 feet across, done a minimal amount of excavation and lined the hole with metal to make a big dish shape, which looks straight up and looks at whatever happens to be up above. But because it's very big, it's very sensitive. So somebody has Frederick Seidel, the new cosmology, There. Hold on a second, and the microphone's coming to you from behind.
2: The new cosmology. Above the third world, looking down on a fourth. Life's aerial photograph of a new radio telescope discolouring an inch of a mountainside in Chile. A Martian invasion of dish receivers. The tribes of Israel in their tents must have looked like this to God. A naive stain of wildflowers on a hill, a field of ear trumpets listening for him, stuck listening to space like someone blind. If there was a God, there never is. eyes shepherd warriors softly pluck their harps and stare off into space and close their eyes and dream. In one tent, the ark, the chip of kryptonite, they dream a recurring dream about themselves, as superpowers and their origin. Man is the only animal that dreams of outer space, epitome of life on earth. The divine mammal which can dream, it is the chosen people of the universe, no more. But once you have got high enough up to look down, once you have got out far enough to look back, The earth seems to magnify itself in intensely sharp focus against the black, beautiful, blind eye, milky blue. That we are not alone, that we are not, are unimaginable. We turn a page of life lying open in the grass to a pink earthworm slowly crossing the Milky Way at nearly the speed of light, red shifted protein. The rest, Is unimaginable. Like the silence before the universe, the last nanosecond of silence 20 billion years ago before the Big Bang is endless.
1: Thank you. And on a related theme, Diane Ackerman, we are listening. Thank you. Microphone will be with you in a moment.
3: We are listening as our metal eyes wake to absolute night where whispers fly from the beginning of time. We cup our ears to the heavens. We are listening on the volcanic rim of Flagstaff and in the fields beyond Boston in a great array that blooms like coral from the desert floor on high wire webs patrolled by computer spiders in Puerto Rico. We are listening for a sound beyond us, beyond sound. Searching for a lighthouse in the breakwaters of our uncertainty. An electronic murmur, a bright, fragile, I am. Small as tree frogs staking out one end of an endless swamp we are listening through the longest night we imagine which dawns between the life and times of stars
1: Thank you Diane Ackerman is an interesting person she deliberately set out to bridge the science arts divide She did a doctorate at the University of Cornell, and on her thesis committee had astronomers like Carl Sagan as well as English people. And she worked for Carl Sagan for a while as one of his researchers. She knows what she's talking about. This is Orion, again, now rather smaller. Maybe you recognize the bright orange star, the armpit of Orion. There's the seven sisters, the Pleiades that he's chasing, and there's Sirius the dog. And this band of stars across the sky is the Milky Way, our galaxy. We live inside a galaxy of 100,000 million stars. It's a flat disk shape. Um, arrangement of the stars and as we're right inside it we get a rather curious view when we look out. When we look towards the rim of the disc we see lots and lots of stars. When we look at right angles we see relatively few stars. I don't know how many stars there are in this photograph but there certainly are a lot. And the next poem is my very contemporary gentleman one of these gentlemen who don't believe in having a first name and a surname. He's just Antler. And this is Antler on learning that on the clearest night only 6,000 stars are visible to the naked eye. If seeing only 6,000 stars with the naked eye struck us to topple in drunken ecstasy or piss looking up in devout praise of being, what would happen if we could truly perceive, comprehend and experience the zillions of stars, galaxies, universes, past, present, future? And if a scientists agree we only use 10% of our brain's potential, then the astonishment we sense is only 10% of the astonishment we could sense. And so it would seem that what seems like dots of light twinkling in pretty patterns, moving across the black, is really enough to shatter us like goblets when the soprano hits the highest note. And if the 10% of the brain power we do use is ignorant of the 99.9% of the totality of the universe... Perhaps a little vino in our goblet ain't a bad idea. Perhaps a flask of wine in deep wilderness night is more powerful than the largest telescope. And so to comets. There are comets cropping up all over the place in the poetry, Particularly Halley's Comet. I've got a couple on Halley's Comet. Uh, This first one is by Stanley Kunitz. And incidentally the picture is not of Halley's Comet, because when Halley's Comet came round in the eighties it was very disappointing for those of us in the North. If you lived in Australia you got a better show, but it wasn't so good for people in the north whereas the previous time it came round, 70-odd years before that, it was actually very good. Stanley Kunitz lived long enough to see both apparitions, to see two apparitions. But he's writing here about the one that happened when he was a small boy. Miss Murphy, in first grade, wrote its name in chalk across the board and told us it was roaring down the storm tracks of the Milky Way at frightful speed, and if it wandered off its course and smashed into the earth, there'd be no school tomorrow. (laughs) A red-bearded preacher from the hills with a wild look in his eyes stood in the public square at the playground's edge, proclaiming he was sent by God to save every one of us, even the little children. Repent, ye sinners, he shouted, waving his hand-lettered sign. At supper, I felt sad to think that it was probably the last meal I'd share with my mothers and sisters. But I felt excited too and scarcely touched my plate. So mother scolded me and sent me early to my room. The whole family's asleep Except for me. They never heard me steal into the stairwell hall and climb the ladder to the fresh night air. Look for me, Father, on the roof of the red brick building at the foot of Green Square. That's where we live, you know, on the top floor. I'm the boy in the white flannel gown, sprawled on this coarse gravel bed, searching the starry sky waiting for the world to end. Stanley Kunitz's father committed suicide when Stanley was a small boy and he never really got over it and his dead father features in quite a lot of his poems. Thomas Hardy, I promised you, the comet at Yellum. Is that you? You have a microphone. The Comet at Yellam It bends far over Yellum Plain, and we, from Yellum height, stand and regard its fiery train, so soon to swim from sight. It will return long years hence, when as now its strange swift shine will fall on Yellum, but not then on that sweet form of thine. One of the ways poets cope with mortality is devices like saying, well, that comet will come back again and somebody else will see it. My children. Maybe. Not always true, but it provides comfort at the time. This is a beautiful photograph of a comet showing the two tails that you get from a comet. I think it's hale Bob. And the photograph has also been done in an interesting way for those of you who are into photography. There's been a timed exposure that has tracked the comet and the stars to a bit, um, a long exposure. And then somebody's let off a red flash before they closed the shutter to illuminate the adult and child in the foreground. It's a technique that's known to a lot of astronomical photographers, and it makes some lovely pictures. Not quite true, but lovely pictures. And the third comet one I have is Kenneth Rexroth, another US poet. Halley's Comet. When in your middle years the great comet comes again, remember me, a child... Awake in the summer night, standing in my crib and watching that long-haired star so many years ago. Go out in the dark and see its plume over water, dribbling on the liquid night. And think that life and glory flickered on the rushing bloodstream for me once and for all who have gone before me. Vessels of the billion year long river that now flows into your veins. So much for comets. They're lovely things, and there's a great stack of poetry about them. Let's move now to something slightly spookier black holes. Somebody has Primo Levi's poem, The Black Stars, in the front here. There's a microphone coming down to you.
4: The Black Stars, let no one sing again of love or war. The order from which the cosmos takes its name has been dissolved. The heavenly legions are a tangle of monsters. The universe, blind, violent and strange, assails us. The sky is strewn with horrible dead suns, dense sediments of mangled atoms. Only desperate heaviness emanates from them, not energy, not messages, Not particles, not light. Light itself falls back down, broken by its own weight. And all of us, human seed, we live and die for nothing. The skies perpetually revolve in vain. Thank you. Primo
1: Levi was an Italian Jew interned in Auschwitz and survived the experience. Uh, Microphone, we're going to be needed down the front again, so don't go too far up. Um, He became a professional chemist, and he's written quite a lot. Uh, I find him an interesting author. His Auschwitz experience, I reckon, meant that he was prepared to look into the darkest of situations, black holes being just one of them, Um, and shows me that one can look into some of these very dark things, and I don't just mean astronomical things, I mean life situations, and see that you might perhaps come through them. Because he has been there, he shows us that one can go there and come back. But having said all that, I think the experience must have cost him quite a lot because he ended up by taking his own life, about 20 years ago I think, but left a great body of writing, which I think is great. On a slightly lighter note, G.J.S. Ross, who I know nothing about, thank you Hardy.
2: Space travel. Apollo to mission control. We are almost within reach of our goal, but our readings of G seem excessive to me, so we may be inside a black hole.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and I love the way the voice gets deeper, the way it does as you <laughs> go into a black hole. <laughs> But there are also poets who are anti-science, anti-astronomy, anti-any science that comes by them, um, feeling that science has destroyed something for society, for community. It may be true. Um, Perhaps we deal these days a bit too peremptorily with myth. Perhaps scientists in particular are a bit too dismissive of the power of story. But, of course, we've also gained a lot, so I don't know where the balance lies. That's something you might like to comment on afterwards. One of the people who is articulate about that growing discomfort is Patrick Dickinson, writing about Jodrell Bank, the big radio telescope that I showed you. Does somebody of that? Thank you.
3: Who were they? What lonely men imposed on the fact of night, the fiction of constellations, and made commensurable the distances between themselves, their loves, and their doubt of governments and nations? Who made the dark stable when the light was not? Now we receive the blind codes of spaces beyond the span of our myths. And a long dead star may only echo how there are no loves, <coughs> nor gods. Men can invent to explain how lonely all men are.
1: <coughs> Thank you. And Walt Whitman has a rather derogatory poem, The Old Astronomer, which I haven't brought along tonight, Uh, but it's similarly um, uncomfortable with astronomers and what astronomy is turning in. But the discomfort is not actually new. Uh, One of the quotations that I keep coming back to is Pascal The eternal silence of the infinite spaces terrifies me. There are, amongst my friends, people who do not like astronomy because it shows them to be small. It shows human beings to be pitifully small and pathetic in the face of an enormous universe a hostile universe. And they find that so depressing, they just don't want to know. And Pascal, I think, was touching a similar nerve. I suspect a bit of that feeling is behind Patrick Dickinson's poem and uh, Waltman as well. I'm going now to do just a little bit of teaching, bring you up to date, with one or two of the developments in astronomy. Some of you will already know this, some may not, because the final poem I want to read um, involves this. The picture is of a galaxy. It's a spiral galaxy. You can perhaps see this spiral structure. It's a galaxy of about a hundred thousand million stars. And we live in one of these. We live inside one so we don't get a nice clear view like that. But if we got outside our galaxy, the Milky Way, this is the kind of thing we'd see. And the whole thing is spinning like a Catherine wheel. It's going around this way. Very pretty. Until you work out how fast it's spinning. And then you realize that it's spinning alarmingly fast so fast that it ought to fly apart and things ought to go whizzing off into space, like a Catherine wheel breaking up. What we've done in saying that is looked at the amount of stars, gas, dust that there is here, working out how much gravity there is due to all these stars and gas and dust, And then looking at how fast things are moving round, and saying, is there enough gravity to hold them in a circular orbit? Or must they fly off into space? And if you look at all the stars and galaxies here, stars and gas and dust here, you find there is not enough mass in this galaxy to stop it flying apart. So we ought to be seeing spiral galaxies in the universe disintegrating. Like dud Catherine wheels. Well, we know of lots and lots and lots, hundreds of spiral galaxies, and they're all very pretty, and none of them are showing any sign of flying apart. Not one of them. So, what's holding it together? What's holding them together? Well, the quick answer is we don't know. But there must be some stuff that has gravity, that helps hold the galaxy together, but although it has gravity, it doesn't shine because we can't see it. So it's there, but it's dark. And we have named, or maybe nicknamed, would be a better phrase, this stuff, dark matter. We're desperately trying to understand what it is, Um, to this stage, we can say that it's different from any other matter, you know, different from this stuff and what you and I are made of and the stars that we know of and so on. It's different stuff. It may actually be several different kinds of stuff. There may be several components of it. There's far more of it than there is of our stuff. So it's a big, big issue. And a lot of astronomical effort has gone into trying to understand what it is. As I've collected my poetry, I've been very struck by the fact that I'm only aware of one professional astronomer who is a poet. And she is, alas, no longer alive. She died at about age 40 with cancer. Um, She died about five, maybe ten years ago now. Her name was Rebecca Elson. And she wrote brilliant stuff, I think. Um, Her work's been published. If you ever wanted to follow it up, there's publisher and title of her book of poetry. It's not just a book of poetry. It also shows her working. You can see her scoring out a word and changing it here and there as she develops the poems it's very very interesting the final poem which you very kindly left me to read um, is by Rebecca Elson it's called let there always be light or searching for dark matter For this we go out dark nights searching for the dimmest stars for signs of unseen things to weigh us down to stop the universe from rushing on and on into its own beyond till it exhausts itself and lies down cold its last star going out. Whatever they turn out to be Let there be swarms of them, enough for immortality. Always a star where we can warm ourselves. Let there be enough to bring it back from its own edges, to bring us all so close that we ignite the bright spark of resurrection. I know of astronomers who are musicians sing, play. I know of sculptors, I know of artists. I know one or two who write science fiction. That's perhaps predictable. I know of no other poet. I wonder why. But thank goodness she wrote such lovely stuff because astronomy is really beautiful. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for being here.